The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106FM. That's me. That's us. Welcome to The Money Show. It's brought to you by APSA CIB, raising a glass to celebrate APSA's Pan-African excellence. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to the show this evening. Wonderful to have you with us. Kevin Lings is standing by with him in a moment as we talk about the huge debt burden South Africa is taking on and the long-term consequences of that. Mteto Nyati, the, the former chief executive of Altron, now the chair of ESCOM. As of yesterday, he promised when he was announced that he would join us a month in the day he was appointed, and he is following through on that. David Shapiro, uh, on 10 stocks that he's betting will have a great first quarter, Pavlo Fatidis, and of course, personal finance this evening on The Money Show, on a day where the Bank of England has become the latest important central bank to keep interest rates on hold, comes after a similar decision by the US Fed last night, and the messaging from both central banks is similar. Rates are not going to go up right now. They might go up again. They might not. But they will stay high for a long time. And uh, they need to remain like that until inflation is beaten lower, close to 2%, or at least with 2% within uh, the crosshairs of central bankers. Our Reserve Bank reports in about three weeks. It may or may not decide to raise interest rates at that meeting. Our own inflation pressures are brought about mostly by the effects of a weaker rand and prices set by government, like electricity and rates and taxes and all sorts of things like that. Uh, But certainly the global outlook on inflation and interest rates is improving and improving markedly. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. To Kevin Lings we go. The Springbok parades, of course, a wonderful distraction from the realities of South Africa's financial situation. And like most things, it's best to have the details out in the open. We don't want to be caught short. We don't want to be taken by surprise. On Monday morning, when all the confetti and the tinsel is cleared up, we do want to be able to face the brutal reality of South Africa's battered finances. Not to detract from the celebrations, but let's also keep perspective here. South Africa is going to be the most indebted it has ever been. The money needed to pay interest is going to cost more than any other item in the budget. Kevin Lings is the Chief Economist at Stan Lib and is with us on the line this evening. Just a quick overview of the medium-term budget policy statement yesterday, Kevin. It's, it wasn't a, a bad handling of the mess that we've got ourselves into. Evening, Bruce. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think it, you know, there was a worry that it was going to be a lot worse. We knew there was a deterioration. We knew the tax revenue had fallen behind. Uh, and I guess there was a concern that government wouldn't make adjustments on the expenditure side to compensate for the increase in salaries. And as it turned out, they did. They've put through fairly sizable reductions in expenditure over the next couple of years effectively to offset the increase in salaries. And so that's what has essentially allowed the budget numbers to look okay-ish. Obviously, there is an ongoing deterioration, but we still um, have got what's called a primary budget surplus, which means that if you take, uh, simply you take your revenue minus your expenditure and you take out the interest cost, then you actually are in surplus. And that is a measure of discipline. So you could argue that if it weren't for the interest cost, if it weren't for the debt level, then perhaps the government finances are not too bad. And I think that certainly pleased the market relative to expectation. Not that the market was thrilled with the numbers. 
it was that the market thought Jesus could really be bad and it turned out to be not as bad. If I didn't have a big tummy, my BMI would be in the target range, Kevin. I mean, we can't just exclude things we don't like. This is 100% true, yes. And certainly investors and rating agencies don't exclude it. So, yep. So at this stage, you know, one of the biggest problems we're facing is is this mountain of debt. And more importantly, is the the cost of that debt. The debt service cost is just phenomenal. It's grown dramatically. It's not a surprise. It's been building up now for some time. But it's extreme and it's it's inflicting a lot of damage and it's forcing government to make hard choices, choices you wouldn't ideally want to make in an economy that is desperate for government to deliver on key infrastructure. And every all this money we spend on interest is effectively taken away from that type of expenditure. The finance minister, though, has avoided a short-term catastrophe. He's accused of kicking the can down the road. I'd rather have him kicking the can down the road than collecting the can and then saying, what do I do with this blimmin' thing? The line you kept seeing ahead of the medium-term budget policy statement is, South Africa runs out of money in March. South Africa runs out of money in March. And then the DA said, no, South Africa runs out of money in December. Widespread panic. That's been averted. That, that, that panic has uh, been averted. Yeah, at least. No, no, no. There's no... No, no. There's no... We're not at that point. We're not at the point where we've got that level of crisis. The government is able to borrow money uh, locally, internationally. Um, Local investors continue to be willing to fund the government. Obviously, they want more for the funding because the risk has gone up. So they're getting rewarded for taking that risk, if you like. But government can access that funding. The tax revenue, yes, it's under pressure, but overall it it performs well. There's a decent level of tax compliance. And I mean, just one number jumped out that individual income tax uh, this year is ahead of budget. It's almost $7 more than the minister projected at the time of the February budget. So that suggests amongst individuals, we're very compliant and that he's been able to hold on to that tax revenue despite all the weakness in the economy, et cetera. So no, we're not at that level of crisis. Where the the government is definitely guilty of kicking the can down the road is they're not dealing with some of the big issues around the state-owned enterprises. They're pushing that back onto the SOEs, which is fair enough, but Realistically, many of these SOEs are not going to be able to get themselves into a functioning uh, situation, a, a viable situation, that ultimately government is going to have to restructure them, is probably going to have to give in some money, and that we don't want to deal with that right now, and obviously that gets pushed out. And so that that is a crisis still waiting to evolve. And the problem with that is that all of these SOEs, we need them to function. They're critical to the functioning of the economy, especially Transnet. And so the sooner you can get the reforms done, the sooner you can move on. And I think we're getting closer there, but but clearly we're not dealing with that particular crisis. The other thing that we kicked down the road was the, the social relief of distress grant, the 350. We still want yeah. to keep it as a temporary grant. But, I mean, how temporary can it be when you, you've had it now for a number of years? You don't quite want to make it permanent, but you equally recognize that you've got to consolidate the social payments, but you're not at the point of of saying what that consolidation looks like. The other thing is you keep hinting about national health insurance, but you don't say anything about it now, and you clearly government doesn't have the finance to deal with that effectively. So there are many of these issues that we just simply either not saying a word about, or we just assuming that we'll get to it when we can get to it. And, and in that sense, yes, we, we're not yeah. dealing with the critical stuff.
We're an economy with champagne tastes, but we've got a beer budget. And I think that's the biggest problem. We're not willing to cut and really slash and burn. We've had many finance ministers over many years promising to cut the size of government. We had that promise made yesterday as well. Um, at the same time, increasing civil service wages or budgeting for increases of 7% a year. They're the only guys in the country who are not taking even any pain in this process. The rest of us are having to suck it up and are having to pay for it, unfortunately. But here's the biggest problem that we do face over, over time, Kevin, and that is the amount of money that we're borrowing, which by 2026, 22 cents out of every 100 cents that government makes uh, is going to go to servicing debt, paying off the mortgage, if you like, of government borrowings. We're going to have more than $6 trillion rand in debt. And I've just refreshed my memory on this. If you're going to come from one to a trillion without taking a break or having a snack or anything, it'll take you 31,000 years. So sure. we've got 180, 190,000 years worth of debt, counting sensibly one, two, three. It just seems like an insurmountable mountain of debt for an economy like South Africa to ever be able to repay, never mind manage. Yeah, that's right, Bruce. It's an enormous amount. It's an enormous amount relative to the size of the economy now. It's 70, it's projected to be 77%. That's certainly right up there. There are countries, a large number of countries that have much more debt relative to the size of the economy, but South Africa would certainly be up there. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you go back to, to when Trevor Manuel was Minister of Finance and he left in 2009, government debt was 23% of GDP. And from 2009, we've taken it from 23 and we're on our way to 77. And the question is, so what did we get for the money? If, if we walk around the country a bit and we say, okay, we've taken debt up enormously, what have we got to show for it other than stadiums? And, and you're going to struggle to find stuff to demonstrate. Whereas if I look at, at uh, China, right, if you go back to the same time period, China's debt was 28. The government debt was 28% of GDP in 2009, and it's now gone to 80%, so slightly higher than us. But if I walk around China, I can see what they spent the money on. The development over that time yeah. period is just phenomenal. And therefore, they put themselves in a position that they can sustain decent growth for many years. Those assets are going to last for decades. And so they're going to reap the reward of having undertaken the investment. We find ourselves in a position where the debt is incredibly high, but we don't have that investment. We've still got to undertake the investment in the energy sector, the transport, the logistics, the water, all of that stuff. That's the problem. We didn't use the increase in debt well. And and so the cost of this has ramped up. And people have seen the risk. Our credit, you know, I don't know how many interviews we did around the credit rating, uh, the credit rating of South Africa and it was dropping, dropping, eventually it moved below investment grade. It matters, it matters enormously because the more risky you are, the more you have to pay the investor to get him to give you some money. So your cost of debt goes up and so, as your debt level and your cost of debt goes up, it's a terrible combination. And that's why our level of debt at 77% is pretty much now unaffordable. It's, it's costing us 22% of total tax revenue to pay for this debt. And in other countries with similar debt levels, because they've got much lower interest rates, they've got better credit ratings, the interest rate isn't as high. So they can effectively afford the debt. And that's the big difference. It's not your total debt that matters. 
It's your ability to afford the debt that matters. And South Africa is now at a point where we just simply can't afford it. And if you look at that interest cost, it's costing us a billion rand a day. So every day, Saturday, Sunday included, South Africa is paying a billion rand a day to service the interest. That's it. And that money's gone. That money's not going into hospitals, schools, infrastructure. It's gone to pay the to pay the owners of the debt, effectively, the owners of capital. And so you've lost that. That's a massive opportunity cost. When Trevor Manuel was Minister of Finance in 2009, the interest cost on debt in South Africa was 7% of total revenue. We've taken it from 7%. We're on our way to 22%. That's what's really done the damage. Explain the consequence, Kevin, of this to me, because you're damned if you do and you're doubly damned if you don't. If you don't take on the debt, you're bankrupt. So you have to borrow money in order to keep funding yourself. What is the consequence of keeping running up debt, keeping raising the cost of having to pay for that debt? Is the consequence low growth forever? A couple of consequences. So, so what matters is, is, is literally what did you do with the debt? If you took the debt and let's say that you invested in port capacity and energy capacity, then you are effectively investing in future economic growth. And so you're going to reap the reward. That means you're going to get the growth. And when you get the growth, you're going to get the employment, you're going to get the tax revenue, and you're going to be able to service that debt quite comfortably because your economy is going to be doing better in the future. If you take the level of debt we did and you simply squander it, then you don't have the economic growth, which means you don't have the employment, which means you can't service this debt. So it matters hugely what you spent the money on. Now we're at a point where we, the choices we make are far more critical, they're far more impactful. We've got to take on debt in order to just keep the system functioning. There's no doubt about that. But what we've got to do is we've got to find a way to systematically restructure our expenditure away from consumption, which would be salaries and social payments, et cetera, into infrastructure, stuff that would give us future growth. And so that's a a huge emphasis. Now, our ability to do that within the current government structure is limited, which then means we've got to reform the SOEs enormously so that they can carry the burden of delivering the infrastructure. But they equally are are bankrupt. So what we've got to do, I think, is you've got to restructure those SOEs and then most importantly, get the private sector involved in the operation of these SOEs and let them use their balance sheet so that you're not tying up your own balance sheet and that way partner with the private sector. And I think if you do that, you will spread the load of this additional funding you need. So I think there's a way out of it. But ultimately what happens? Well, on this, at the current pace, look at what the minister forecast as GDP growth for the next three years. He's saying over the next three years, we're not going to grow at more than 2%. The population grows at 1.6%, so we're going to kind of move sideways at best. And what that means is that all of this is simply going to get worse because you're not going to be growing your tax base. Ultimately, your interest cost overwhelms your budget and you enter what's called a debt trap where your interest cost is making up such a big portion of what you spend that you crowd out any other form of spending. You can't, you can't deliver hospitals. You can't deliver social payments. You can't deliver yeah. salaries because you're paying too much on interest. 
government keeps talking about avoiding that. Government keeps talking about investing in infrastructure. Government keeps talking the talk and there's talking the right talk, but unfortunately is not delivering on the talk. And that's what's made investors in South Africa and those who might want to invest in South Africa, but are waiting on the sidelines to see whether or not uh, we will step up to, uh, to the plate on this one. Very, very nervous. That's right. So government has, if you look at the plans, they, they're decent. Uh, and if we had went ahead and implemented those plans, it would make a difference. So our ability to implement, implement the plans and implement the plans timelessly uh, is problematic and it remains problematic. And there are efforts that government has put in place in the office of the presidency, et cetera, to effect some of these reforms. But they do take an inordinate amount of time and, and it's time we don't have. So we end up with this as your sort of overarching conclusion in my mind. We've got a public sector we can't afford. Right now, the size and scope of the public sector is unaffordable. We can look at the debt level and we can see it's unaffordable. And and it's going to remain unaffordable if the growth rate is sitting between 1% and 2%. So given that as your backdrop, you've got a choice. Either you find a way urgently to lift the growth rate, but lift the growth rate, I mean, 4%, 5% GDP growth, expand the number of people employed, expand the tax base, and then you'll have enough money to afford the public sector we've got. Or you say to yourself, listen, I can't grow this economy by more than 1% or 2%. I have to cut back the size of the public sector. I've got to trim the public sector to meet the tax base I actually have. Not what I would ideally want, but what I've actually got. And we're just not willing to do that because that's a hard political decision. And so we keep waiting, waiting. And like always, we're going to wait to the point of absolute crisis, then get forced into making some sort of alteration. The minister hinted that they're looking at the restructuring, but it's urgent. And so this is the sort of stark position we're heading into. Either we restructure government and we trim it down, or we lift the growth rate enormously. Now, there's ways you can do ex- both of those. Both of those are going to require substantial political will. I'm just not seeing enough of that political will materialize to make a difference in, in the right okay. time frame. Thank you, Kevin Lings, very, very much for a big explanation this evening as to the state of our finances. So, yes, we're uh, we're, we're deeper in the woods, but we have a map. <laughs> the question is, do we choose to follow the map or do we decide to go, you know what, the map's just a suggestion and off we'll go off on our own on our own pluck. Um, so far, that's where, what we've been doing and we do need some discipline. I was encouraged by Monday night's comments by the president, the president away, awake to the facts that um, we are under a huge amount of duress and there's no sugarcoating that particular bitter pill. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Join APSA to toast and celebrate Pan-African excellence. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Markets. Again, again, again. I just, I'm too quicker on the, quicker on the button or just, yeah, I don't know, hit me. Um, Graham Kerner with the Kerner Perspective this evening. Graham Kerner is a regular Thursday evening market commentator. Despite all of the negativity and the concerns of the long term and the budgets and the forecasts and the lack of South Africa's government to take tough political decisions, Graham Kerner, today's market action suggested that we were in Narnia or somewhere equally, you know, equally akin to paradise. 
Oh, it was beautiful, Bruce, and, and it was pretty broad-based as well. So if you look, top 40 all share equally weighted all, and the cap um, swicks all up 2.4%, so it tells you it was not just the big caps, it wasn't just the rand hedges, it was... Uh, yeah, they said there would be days like these, but we haven't had one of them for a while. We've just sort of slowly, as the year has worn on, been sort of on a descending staircase. So it was lovely, lovely to see. Um, I suppose thanks to the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England for pausing. Um, yeah, absolutely. And what, what Jerome Powell has said and what the, the Bank of England today has said is, we really don't want to have to do this. We'll do it if we have to. We don't want to do this. And that sent a, a very clear signal um, that the worst may be, if not over, very nearly over. And that's said markets absolutely bananas, including a, a very welcome recovery in the currency. Yeah, Bruce, very much. And, and you know, we've got a, uh, an MPC decision, I think, on the 23rd of November, uh, you know, the RAND back at 18.47 as we speak, that's probably going to take a lot of that inflation pressure out. And, of course, oil also back at 86. So, yeah, maybe the the MPC says, okay, well, you know, maybe we too should pause and then I think we're done. So I think, you know, more recent inflation data out of the out of the EU also telling you that, that uh, higher rates are definitely and the base effects are definitely, you know, coming through. So hopefully... Um, you know, we, we, we've seen seen all the hikes now and we can look forward to maybe not rapidly declining interest rates, but um, interest rates which are going to be cut before they, uh, rather than being hiked. And that's something we haven't seen for a very long time. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, but generally I think, Bruce, we've been, we've been talking for a while on the show about the fact that, you know, SA equities are just cheap and, and, and we as investors and as, as citizens could get caught flat-footed, you know, with a little bit of good news. And I think that's what we saw today, you know, with I think one out of three of the top 40 shares were actually up by 4% or more. That tells you just how quickly this market turned. Talk to me about um, the the fact that banks were up about 4.5%, banks and insurance companies, local retail. I mean, it's the clearest indication yet that this market believes that that's where the benefit's going to come when interest rates do get cut. Um, they could go up before they go down in South Africa, but I'm not sure they will. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it's uh, a very clear indication of some optimism going into 2024 that, you know, although there are lots of things going wrong, there are more things going right than were perhaps this year. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, in spite of all the, the, the challenges we face as a country, um, and let's, let's face it, I think a lot of emerging um, central banks uh, have, have um, be more aggressive in terms of a front-loading the rate hikes, and I think our, our central bank as well. So, you know, if we get another quarter percent, well, you know, that just adds to five. It's not a big deal. Um, but I think exactly to your point, um, you know, the the outlook I think is is probably improving. And you saw it as, for example, in in Pepco, for example, which you know said profits would be down, pick a number between five and fifteen, and in spite of that, the share price was up. Uh, almost 4%. So I do think there's a lot of bad news baked in this conversation before. Um, and I mean, you still look at the South African banks, you know, you're, you're looking at PEs of under nine and dividend yields forward of, of about 7%. So, you know, there's a, a massive margin of safety there. And I think that's probably why uh, why they ran so hard. So I don't think it's necessarily just an essay story. I think it's a flow story. Um, because let's be honest, as we've discussed, you know, a lot of drainage of liquidity from the local market and a lot of angst. So um, in spite of, you know, this, this rally over today, 
we still see a lot of value. And I think there's there, a lot of people could get caught, as I said, flat-footed by just how quickly this market could turn simply because there's so much value evident. Graham Kerner with the Kerner Perspective this evening. Thank you, Graham. Um, from your lips to David Shapiro's ears, because David Shapiro is going to be joining us in about 20 minutes' time. He has thrown down the gauntlet. He's thrown down a challenge, and he said, I'm picking 10 shares. Who wants to come and fight with me? He's gladiatorial. Gladiatorial. No, that would be wrong. Gladiatorial in his stance. He's putting a big bottle of whiskey on the on the table and saying, anybody who beats me, I can have the whiskey. Um, and it's to drive some enthusiasm in the local stock market. So we'll chat to him at about 10 to 7 this evening as to why he feels now is the time, as Graham has implied, it may very well be for investors to pile back into South African shares. We'll pick up on that story coming up in just a bit. But first, Veronica Mahwadi at half past six with the latest eyewitness news. 7.02. Bruce is on The Money Show. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. I'm Teto Nyati Sanibai. He's the chairman of ESCOM, uh, just recently appointed uh, and took office yesterday. You do have to love trade unions. The South African Federation of Trade Unions says it is talking to what are called relevant political parties. It doesn't say which ones in particular, but it says it wants to bring forward legislative protocols that would compel all senior government officials to enroll their children into public schools. I think it's a good idea. You could take it further. You could only use public hospitals and only the SAPS for personal security. No blue light brigades, no private security companies. Yeah, that's going to fly. Um, it, would it make the slightest bit of difference, I wonder? Certainly if it came to cabinet ministers, I don't think it would have any effect whatsoever. You might have to say, well, they're grandchildren. Cabinet ministers' grandchildren because most of their kids are very grown up, because most of our cabinet, of course, as we know, is um, past what the corporate sector regards as a retirement age. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Welcome to Mteto Nyati. The new chair of ESCOM was appointed a month ago and took office yesterday. He did promise that once he got his feet under the chairman's desk, he would give us a, a shout, and he has done so this evening, which is good. Mteto, I'm not sure what the appropriate salutation is. Is it congratulations or is it condolences? Which one's more appropriate, do you think? <laughs> It's probably both. <laughs> it's probably both. But uh, but uh, I think it's a good thing, uh, Bruce. Uh, we need more and more people who are coming from business uh, who can be able to help us. Uh, we are going through very, very difficult times as a country. We need people who, that can help uh, turn things around. You demonstrated your ability to manage investor dynamics, to balance the needs of the, the Fenter family and other shareholders at Altron. This does, though, feel many layers deeper and more complicated than that, which was already quite a complicated turnaround, and it took you the better part of five years to achieve. This feels considerably bigger. Yeah, this is uh, much more complex, Bruce. Uh, it's also in an environment that is not, that familiar to me, you know, in the public sector space. Uh, if you just look at, at, at the number of uh, different stakeholders in the government alone, probably four or five, you know, look at the Department of Finance, DMRE, TPE, Ministry of uh, Electricity, Environment, and all of these are, are key stakeholders that one has to stay connected with and in many ways, try and also make sure that there's alignment across them. 
So it is not easy, but uh, but it's something that having been around in this on this board now for a year uh, is something that I think is possible to do. You've made a big commitment to this position as ESCOM chair. Outside of your own financial interests in managing your family's money, this is getting your full attention. You stepped down from the board of Nedbank. You stepped down from the board of Telcom in the run-up to this appointment. Um, this is, you know, again, you know, non-exec posts don't pay vast amounts of money, but it is, I think, a sacrifice personally for you to say, right, I'm willing to give this everything it's got. It is uh, it's a huge sacrifice, uh, Bruce. Uh, when I look at the uh, both the boards at NetBank and, uh, and Telcom, you know I, I truly uh, liked and enjoyed the things that I was involved in on both boards uh, and very very strategic kind of work. Uh, but when I was approached for this particular role, uh, after discussing definitely with my family and saying, okay, this is something that I, I, I will do, uh, I had to then ask myself the question, do I have the time uh, that is required to be able to give it this, the full attention? Uh, I came to the conclusion that I don't. Uh, I had to cut somewhere. And it was very difficult to go to to the chairs of those companies to let them know. But... This kind of thing, you know, if you commit, you need to commit fully uh, in order to, you know, we need to be bringing in the new CEO, you need to help him align many things, uh, and, and you have to be present. You know, I could not be all over. So that's the focus that I've given this role. What's your relationship like with Pravin Gordon? He's the, the minister ultimately in charge. Uh, my relationship with him is uh, that one of mutual respect. Uh, he's somebody that uh, listens. Uh, he's somebody that's quite logical uh, in terms of the approach to things. Uh, he's somebody that also uh, likes detail. So it's very important to understand that and be able to help the person to be able to get what he or she needs. So my relationship with him is, uh, is a very good one. And yeah, I'm looking forward to continuing to working with him. Uh, he's also somebody that I've seen, you know, he, he seeks advice, seeks guidance in many things. And, uh, you know, I'm able to provide that, uh, that support as and when required. Is the, is the criticism of him of being meddlesome and interfering in the affairs of state-owned enterprises on his watch, do you regard that as fair from what you've seen? Uh, Look, I cannot generalize because I've not been on other boards, but when I look at this particular board that I'm on, uh, I've not seen that. What I've seen, though, is uh, somebody that is uh, uh, trying to very much to hold people accountable. Uh, like any shareholder, you know, when I go back to my time uh, as a CEO, you know, on a quarterly basis or every six months, you have to go and account to the investors, you know, and, and that's, that's how things are. And, and that's how I've seen him operating, you know. The big announcement in the medium term budget policy statement yesterday, no free cash from government as a bailout for ESCOM, rather an interest bearing loan or a series of interest bearing loans. Markets, I think, fairly relieved at the signal that that sends. Were you consulted on that ahead of time? Or did that come as a bit of a surprise to you in the medium term budget policy statement? 
Look, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily comment on that. Uh, say, uh, look, I've just been on the job uh, only just one day. So it is, it is not something that I was privy to. But certainly I do think that our team uh, who work very closely with, uh, with the National Treasury uh, have been uh, informed and been part of those discussions. Uh, they, they already take uh, ESCOM seriously. And uh, we always make sure that we are all connected around these matters. But personally, I was not consulted because, of course, I was not in the role at the time. Are you worried about the risk of double jeopardy when it comes to the writing off of ESCOM debt? Some municipalities do pay their bills. Many, several municipalities don't pay their bills. They've just had their debt written off as a little Christmas boncella. Uh, I wonder whether or not that doesn't send a dangerous signal. No, I mean, again, this is, this is where uh, us and National Treasury are working very closely together. This is, okay. uh, this is a problem that needs to be solved together, and we are, we are working very much close. Uh, for them to be able to write off the debt, they need to have demonstrated over a period of 12 months that they have been paying the current account of ESCOM, you know. And, and that's a good thing for ESCOM because it gives us the, the necessary cash flow now and, 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 and also it creates that track record and of people uh, paying and they're going to be monitored over a three-year period. So all of this, the way it's structured, it's very good for ESCOM. It's bringing in the kind of behavior uh, to the municipalities, forcing them to, to do the right thing. And, and that can only be good, I think, for, for the country and for how the municipalities need to be run going forward. We, we, we just as a country cannot have these very important structures being destroyed by, I guess, not doing things in the right way. So this discipline that is being instilled by, by national treasury can only be a good thing for the country. When do you anticipate being able to appoint a new chief executive? It's been a long time since Andre Dereta left. We've had interim chief executive. We've had speculation that there might be a new CEO, and then there was opposition to the chief executive. Um, what What are your timeframes as chair of the ESCOM board to get a new CEO in place? Uh, I would like to get the new CEO in place as soon as possible, uh, because for me, an institution or an organization as big as this one, uh, it requires its head. You know, it requires the CEO to drive the, the agenda, the turnaround agenda, and most importantly, the culture. Because the, what is going to be required here and what is required is for, for the organization to significantly change the way we have been doing things. And that can only be led from, from the front, from the top. Uh, and, and the CEO has to set the tone, the CEO, together with, with his ex-co. So for me, uh, this is an appointment that needs to be done uh, as soon as possible. And from the board side, we have been able to conclude our piece. Uh, we were able to last week to send to the minister uh, the three names, that uh, three people that are appointable, and now it has to go through the government processes. And I'm sure uh, I've had the minister indicating that before the end of this financial year, 
and uh, and I hope that if the fact that we have been able to to give them the, the names sooner than possibly he thought uh, uh, the appointment will be made sooner. Mteto Nyati, thank you very much indeed for chatting to us this evening. Mteto Nyati, the new ESCOM chairman uh, on The Money Show this evening. And yeah, it's a fascinating decision to take on uh, what ultimately becomes a thankless job. And you know, just look at the high-profile individuals over the years who sort of come and gone from the CEO position and have gone, come and gone from the chair and from the board. Um, and I just hope that he's you know, got the, um, the desire and the fortitude to keep on going against what is going to be an uphill battle on a regular basis. No doubt. Uh, let's uh, pause for a moment. David Shapiro, the veteran stockbroker who's seen more crises come and go than most of us have had hot lunches. Why he's so keen suddenly to invest on the JSE? That's coming up in a moment. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. South Africa's most battle-scarred stockbroker with us this evening is looking to build a portfolio of South African shares and he's looking for people who think they know better than him to challenge him. He never shies away from a fight. There's veteran stockbroker at Sassman, David Shapiro, who's with us. You've seen booms and busts, David, in a career that has spanned more than five decades. You're feeling at the moment, it would seem, as if this particular downturn that we've endured for, it feels like forever, maybe has done its worst and you're ready to start putting money on the table. Absolutely. I think you put it very articulately. All the signs are now pointing towards uh, the next move being upwards. Look, Bruce, there's still a lot of rubble around. You know, it's the end of the war. Uh, you've got to pick up the pieces. There's still uh, there's a bit of building to do. But I think that uh, particularly the shares that I chose have come under such enormous pressure. They're all solid businesses. There's nothing wrong with them. Uh, they've got good products. They've just been subject to uh, uh, uncertain conditions or really very difficult conditions. So my story is I'm very bullish on global markets, full stop. But I think that JSC, uh, particularly these that I've chosen, I think just offer um, a, a chance to to really do well. So that was behind it. You know, it's a bet. When I say a bet, I of like course. to take on people and say, okay, well, what do you think? You know, where do you think I can do better? No, absolutely, David. I mean, what you've done is you've identified 10 stocks. You say these 10 stocks could mm. make you rich in the new year. They do come with a health mm. warning. And you're setting a time frame of six months to the end of April. And in there, you've got um, Anglo-American Platinum, African Rainbow Minerals, Growth Point, the JSE Limited, Cup Industrial, MTN, Meta, Nedbank, Pick and Pay and Tiger Brands. As you say, some of these guys have been dragged through a bush backwards. Pick and Pay and Tiger Brands in particular on that list. Property shares also and the platinum stocks what a horrible place to have been what's what's giving you that sense of confidence is it all about the fact that we are hearing positive signals from central bankers about the future direction of inflation and interest rates is it that simple that gave me that gave me the signal you know when i watched powell last night i could see it in his face he's had enough it's done uh, no interest rate hike now, nor is it going to come uh, in December. They they always qualify it. Yes, we leave room open, but you know when you've come to the end of the road. And that was on top of an, a lot of other signals. You know, uh, corporate America is in very good shape. We've had some stupendous uh, results out of that, uh, out of those companies. They had solid businesses. Um, the war in the Middle East, 
not spreading, oil prices have come down. The RAND was a big signal. And the RAND, uh, what it what it showed you was that people are moving out of the safety of the dollar. That was a big move. You know, the RAND now, 1844, I think uh, uh, not even a few days ago, it was it's closer to 1950 or thereabouts. So th- those are all the signals. When you start to see that, and when you see the kind of moves that we see in a markets today, you know, okay, it's time to uh, put your neck out and do something. So, um, you know, you can't sit back too long. But these businesses that I identified, you know, I know them well. Um, they're all okay. They're all solid, solid balance sheets, decent management and so on. No, but then that's the point here, David. I mean, so many people are ready to write mm. South Africa off. Yesterday's medium-term budget policy statement was the good, the bad, and the the very, very grotesquely ugly mm. um, of the financial reality of South Africa. But there's something extraordinary yeah. about South African businesses operating in this environment <laughs> that somehow they they managed to navigate their way perpetually through crises that would would break other management teams in many parts of the world. Bruce, I've got the greatest respect for our private sector. I mean, what they go through. And if you think about this year, no electricity, no water. I mean, Tiger Brands actually had to pay for its own water or it helped the municipality uh, to get it water so that it could put it in its factories uh, down in the Cape. I mean, that's how bad it was. So uh, they go through a lot. And I think it's there's a resilience in our private sector that I've always admired. And, um, you know, that's why I've chosen even the property. I try to spread it a bit, but, uh, you know, even a property group like Growth Point, I don't say it's going to turn around straight away, but I think given a few months, uh, rates here are also going to come down. So all of this is pointing towards um, these businesses doing a lot better, or certainly the share prices picking up from where they are. So you're throwing down the gauntlet, you're throwing down a challenge, saying to people, if you mm. think you can do better than me, come and let's 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 have a let's have a rumble. Are you actually going to run a formal competition on this? Are you setting a deadline on it? There's certainly a bottle of single malt whiskey right on it that you're putting up for grabs if anybody can beat you in the, up until the <laughs> the end of April. Um, how are you going to run this? But just uh, informally. You know, the the okay. one thing we're not short of is Nobel laureates. You know, that's everybody as clever and always. But I just wanted to get the conversation going. You know, I want I want to get people to, or maybe even give them the confidence to to get into the market and say, okay, this is exactly what I'm saying to you now. Um, this is past. It looks to me like things are going to get better from now. Um, you know, um, start start buying, start putting money in, into our market. Um, it's a difficult market to JSC. I'm, I'm wildly bullish on the US markets. I'm still a big tech bull in that, but you can't overlook opportunity when it looks you in the face. And, uh, you know, certainly Anglo Flats, that's down 55%, uh, this year. There's plenty of uproom. What, and Bruce, a big point as well. What I do see in these companies is the downside is very limited. And that's where I'm taking the risk. I was talking to Wayne McCurry last night and we were saying, okay, well, we can take options on these businesses. Uh, and this is just one step ahead of an option, you know, just, okay, put some money in. Let's see. And we, I, I will keep you in touch, you know, on Twitter. I'll let them know or on X as we call it now and, uh, let you know how my portfolio it is. I call it, you know, paddling up Schitt's Creek. With the S C H I T T, as in the uh, like, as in the, the TV show. Mm.
There we go. Thank you for <laughs> clarifying, David Jaberowitz Aspen. Thank you, David. David's been a stockbroker for many years and he's seen uh, the depths of despair and he's seen those depths of despair turn into euphoric wins and gains. And he's feeling like we could be at the beginning of all of that. Bruce Hong, who's my colleague on Cape Talk, has just sent me a WhatsApp saying he's just had a call from Debbie Shepherd at Cape Town Airport. Our producers, get hold of Debbie, please, because I would like to talk to Debbie. I want to find out whether or not there are any plans for this evening. The box departing Oatama now, due to land in Cape Town at uh, 10 past 9. And Debbie would love to have you at the airport to welcome the box. I don't think it's going to be a welcome quite like Oatama was. Um, was it yesterday morning? It feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, but, uh, yeah, producers, let's get hold of Debbie Shepherd. Let's chat to her and see if um, there's any sort of pulse happening in Cape Town this evening. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, raising a glass to celebrate Africa's pan-African excellence. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. The first day, and it seems a very low-key day at the AGOA gathering at NASRAC. Um, it's been going since 2000, the African Growth and Opportunity Act. And I found it interesting today uh, that the African Union's top trade official, Albert Muchanga, saying that the United States needs to commit to a 10-year um, agreement with African countries. And I think that's a reasonable thing. We need um, to have the the trade arrangements with the United States. And the United States need us to have us um, on board as well in terms of you know, ensuring that we don't get too close to China and Russia and to all the people they don't want us to get close to. So they can either choose to em- envelop us with love, trade, and wonderful juicy deals, or they can push us further into the arms of states that they regard to be less salubrious. Um, so I don't see a problem with the renewal of a Goa deal, certainly not as far as South Africa is concerned. Four countries, however, will be removed from a Goa. Uh, there are rules, there are requirements, of course, uh, that you need to participate in. And so therefore, um, it is... Um, it, it, that is what we're going to do. Uh, we just got hold of somebody at the at Cape Town International Airport, but she's not allowed to come on air and speak to us this evening. But confirming the Springboks are on their way to Cape Town. So they've had a very, very busy day in um, in Joburg today. I'm sure there's nothing they would like better than to arrive at a very quiet uh, airport with the chirping of crickets. But um, if you would like to meet the Springboks, if you would like to see the Springboks, if you would like to show your appreciation for the extraordinary performance they delivered during the uh, Rugby World Cup, they are on their way. They're due to land at Cape Town International Airport at 10 past nine this evening. Um, and it, yeah, it gives you an opportunity to get up, up close and personal. And um, it's a wonderful arrivals hall. There are lots of viewpoints that you could utilize in order to, to see the Springboks and the airports company would welcome you there. Um, you'll have to pay for parking, but they would welcome you there nevertheless. Um, and um, it is an opportunity for you to get up close and personal if you're not able to get to the streets tomorrow and join the jubilation that we witnessed in Pretoria, in Bramfontein, and in Soweto this afternoon. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. There's no crisis like a Twitter crisis. My goodness gracious me. Fin Twitter or financial Twitter or. Twitter, whatever it is, going into meltdown over the last 24 hours over a decision by Easy Equities to start charging a monthly 25 rand fee on their accounts. Here's the thing. You will only pay the fee if you withdraw 
more than you deposit during the month. That looks like a strategy to try and get people to be more active on their trading accounts. Carol Nolte joins us this evening. Carol is, speaks on behalf of the um, on behalf of Easy Equities and joins us this evening from Johannesburg. Uh, to explain to us, if you would, Carol, please, why you have imposed this new fee and uh, and what the thinking was behind it. Thank you very much. It's a great opportunity to chat and we've loved the engagement on social media and elsewhere. We've had some wonderful feedback. So simply put, we want um, everybody to be engaged in active investors, regardless of the quantum of money. So whether they invest one rand or 10 or millions, doesn't matter. But what we don't want are people that are passive uh, and that don't display good uh, investment behavior. We really want to change the narrative and we really want to support people on their journey to financial freedom. It, it may also help you because I think you've got two million active uh, registered users of whom a million are dormant accounts. Those aren't accounts that you want to administer. Those aren't accounts that you necessarily want on your books. Um, this feels like a, a way to shake those guys out, to say, guys, look, either pee or get off the pot. Exactly. Well put. And we want to support those people. So we, we never want to charge this fee. What we want are people that are depositing. So one way that you avoid the fee is if that you deposit more than you withdraw a month, as you've mentioned. Another way is that you refer somebody. Another way to, to contribute is that you do some education on the platform, that you learn more about investments. Another way is that you have multiple accounts. Uh, we had great suggestions, as I said. One we, we've implemented today, if you've maxed out your tax-free savings account, no fee. Um, and we're going we're gonna to constantly add these. We want more suggestions. Anything that displays good financial behavior, no fee. The idea is not to charge a fee, but the idea is that we have engaged, uh, educated, passionate users. And we already have many of them, Bruce. So there are many people who are never going to pay this fee. They're just going to carry on doing what they're currently doing. Why the outrage? I mean, you've been giving it away for a long time. I mean, you've been giving free access for an awfully long time. The moment anybody launches a fee, there's going to be a violent reaction. Do people just, as normal, um, not read the announcement that came out with the fee and didn't actually understand the implementation of it? Absolutely. And, And we don't think it's an outrage. You know, it's a passionate community. We've had some wonderful engagements, as I've said. We had one of our highest deposit days yesterday in a long time. Uh, withdrawals didn't increase, great registrations. Um, we had some superb activity on the platform, great suggestions. Um, and, and that's what we welcome. We didn't make this decision and that's it, take it or leave it. Um, and so we, we welcome, we love this engagement. We will change what we do based on, on feedback, good input. But we, we also need people to listen to more shows like yours, to read more magazines like The Financial Mail, to educate themselves and to be engaged. It's not good enough just to register on our platform another one. You've got to exhibit some discipline. Um, otherwise, we're never going to change personal people's narrative or this country's. I just, I just saw the, what scared me a little bit about what happened at Easy Equities probably, what, a year, 18 months ago. It was during the hype around Robin Hood. And people mm. were just throwing money into stocks and things. Nobody was doing any research. They yeah. were hyping up stuff. And we saw the Purple Capital share price rocket. And they were like, hey, look at that. Um, mm. And it was just, it was misguided enthusiasm for investing. It was almost like this was a free ticket to prosperity and wealth. Uh, and then reality set in, of course. And I wonder how many people have been badly burned by that experience who are going to be too terrified to come back in a, a calm and disciplined fashion. But I suppose that's the nature of stock markets. Some people will adapt, some people will learn, some people will capitalize, and some people will benefit, uh, and some people simply will not want to do the work. 
Exactly. And, and, and Bruce, if people aren't prepared to do the work, then you know, that, that's not good enough, quite frankly. People have got to put some effort into it. People have got to be educated. Um, and, and whether they invest in, in crypto or property or single shares or USD, whatever, we're agnostic where people invest. We're agnostic to how much they invest. But we want people to make an effort uh, to educate themselves. Um, and, and we're very excited by this. You know, we, we're constantly growing the number of engaged users. Um, and as I said, we've seen some wonderful change in behavior already. Um, and we look forward to, to much more. Carol, thank you. Carol is Group Enablement Officer. That's what they call it, the Purple Group. Purple Group is the owner, uh, ultimately, of Easy Equities. Easy Equities um, getting lots of uh, flack online over the last 24 hours. A storm in a digital teacup, quite possibly, um, if you are active and if you are engaged, if you are investing, then you're not going to be charged. If you're one of the half of the people who signed up because you thought it was a nice idea and your friends were doing it, and so you did it, and so therefore, close your account. If you're not going to be serious about it, don't waste their time. Time. Don't generate more admin for them. Don't make them send you statements and things like that. Um, yeah, just tidy up your affairs a little bit. Spend a bit of time first thing tomorrow morning just doing those few things. Or have another look at it. Have a listen to the interview with David Shapiro. Have a listen to the conversation I had with Graham Kerner this evening. Have a listen in depth to the conversation I had uh, with Kevin Lings, who by no means was sugarcoating any pill whatsoever. However, um, it is just the sense that if we are seeing the end of, of interest rate hikes, and even if we do have interest rates staying higher for longer, which is the world's favorite phrase at the moment, Perhaps this is the end of the bad times or coming to close to the end of bad times and at the beginning of something that resembles better times. We hope. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Join APSA to toast and celebrate Pan-African excellence. APSA's registered FSP. The Money Show. Small business. With Pablo Fatidis. <laughs> I keep doing that, Pablo. I keep doing that. This interruption, this enthusiasm, this excitement, this joy that I feel and I, this, this affinity I feel for small business and entrepreneurs, and then I keep interrupting the jingles. I apologize again. Pablo is the chief executive at Auric Business Accelerator. You want to talk to us about positioning your business so that you stand out in the marketplace because there are very few new ideas under the sun. Uh, if any, there are no ideas under the sun, new ideas. I think it's a biblical quote. Um, so you're doing a job, you're doing something and you do it very, very well, but you're kind of doing something that looks like something that a hundred people are other also doing. And it feels like it's a race to the bottom on price or a race to the top on service. But how do you stand out if you're doing something that lots of other people do do, Pablo? Uh, you know, Bruce, I think it's not if, but because you're doing something that so many other people do, and you're absolutely right, there are very, very few new ideas. And new ideas in their own right are loaded with other problems because most people don't want to experiment or explore new ideas. You need to sell what's being bought and you need to offer what people need. And a new idea always carries risk. It carries an enormous amount of investment around education, so saying that you have a new idea is one thing, bringing it to market is a second thing. And then today in this environment, when you bring it to market, many other people are able to imitate and follow it. So given the fact that we are sitting with almost 2 billion websites littering the eyes and ears and minds and ideas of future customers and current customers, and given the fact that mostly everything is migrating towards a commodity status where 
whatever you have to offer, you can probably, or a customer could probably find in some other shape or form elsewhere. Positioning becomes vital and positioning is what defines the blueprint against which your business needs to be built. It defines the success of your ability to create a team to drive the business. It maps out a clear and distinctive path around which you can orientate your time and attention on growth. And Bruce, it's one of the defining features that locks in a future valuation too. We have to get it right. Okay, so is positioning branding? Is positioning product? Is positioning service? Is positioning um, uh, SEO? Is that you know positioning yourself at the top of the leaderboard when somebody Googles whatever it is that that you do? What is positioning precisely? Well, you know what's interesting about it is very often positioning is spoken about in reference to competitors, where you are measured up against your closest competitors. And there's an interpretation or a view that what makes you different to them is ABC or XYZ. And very often those positioning statements are centered around things like, well, you have a gizmo that has three extra bells or whistles compared to your competitor. Or in your service that you offer, you have one or two additional elements that give you distinction and difference to your competitor. Or it might be in your price. Or... It might be in your geographic reach. And these features, these factors, what I don't like about them, and as valid as they may be, what I don't like about them, Bruce, is that it forces you into a framework where in which if you play and respond, you will always find yourself following as opposed to leading. And defining the market differently is what positioning ought to do. It really has a number of elements to it. It talks to your purpose, it talks to your products and services, it talks to your customer experience. And each of those have to be devolved or understood a bit deeper. Okay, explain. How do we do it? Okay, so if we're going to start with your purpose, in other words, why does your business exist? And yes, of course, you're going to turn around and say in the back of your mind, well, my, big, my business exists because uh, I need to earn an income. It's my economy. It's it's what I do to put food on the table. Um, it's what I do to give myself uh, relevance in the world, to earn economy, and hopefully, you know, improve my lot as a whole. And that's where we all start very often, because this idea that you start with an opportunity is granted to very few. By far, most of us have started out of sheer necessity. We had to do something. And that something is often very guided by our past experience, what's guided by the strength of your aptitude or capabilities or skills. For example, if you're an engineer, it's unlikely you're going to become a hairdresser or start a hairdressing salon. It's not where your skill set lies. And if it is, and if it does, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe that's where I went for my haircut, and that's why most of it's no longer there. But you need to find something that leverages off your skill and your aptitude and your interest. And... A lot of people then start defining that as their purpose. We have a great product and we can change the world. But in the back of my but mind, people, yes, I need to come. Purpose, purpose is abused like innovation used to be abused. Remember the time of the F&B ads and most innovative bank in the world and all of that sort of stuff. And then everybody's, oh, no, we're innovative. Oh, no, we innovate. Oh, oh. and now it's all about purpose. Purpose, purpose, purpose. Mm. And there's only one purpose why you exist. And that purpose should be, as a business, 
not as an individual, but as a business, you solve a problem. If you don't solve a problem, you have no reason to exist because there is no such thing as a luxury or discretionary spend by a customer somewhere. And if you do and are able to articulate the problem you solve, and you can understand how for your customer that problem comes about, which shows that you have a deep understanding around the problem you solve. You have an understanding of what the cost of that problem will be if that problem is not solved for that client or customer. And in understanding that in depth, seeing the earliest signs of when that problem emerges, or understanding the conditions that drive that problem into the lived experience of your customer before your customer or client even becomes aware of that problem. That ability to dissect a problem and truly, truly understand it and understand the character of it and the cost of it and the structure of it. It's the first piece you need to get right in your purpose. Because if your business isn't defined in part through positioning by existing in order to solve that kind of problem, then you don't have any purpose other than I'm there to create economy for myself and to try and find markets for my products and services. Getting that piece right and defining your purpose against that is the first of the three elements that is essential as a contribution to your positioning. It's so absolutely critical because it's it's about not what you are, but who you are and why in this very cluttered landscape, I need to associate with you. Why should I back you? Why should I support you? Why should I have you as my customer? Why should I be your customer? And if there is a mutual affinity, we feel good about it. We um, we serve each other well. We look after each other well. We treat each other with respect. We pay our bills. We do all of those sorts of good things. And ultimately, that leads to the, the products and the services and really the customer experience. Because if you've got your purpose nailed down solidly and everybody understands exactly what it is and what you're trying to achieve, it won't be perfect. Um, but you you start heading down a, a very healthy path. It does. And it starts to give you a, a true, true sense of why you exist. You know, once you've understood that that problem, once you've understood the problem, and typically, you know, we start with a service or a product looking for a place or space to trade the service or product. But if we start with the problem and then we work backwards and say, well, in order to solve the problem, we need a product or a service. It helps you define what you need in your product or what you need in your service. It helps you ensure that with whatever product or service you're offering in the market, it's valid and it can find a good home and fit well with people who have the problem that defines the reason or the purpose behind your business. Very often we work at the other way around. We normally start by saying, we have a product, we have a service. Now we need to find a purpose. Now we need to find a market. Now we need to look for markets to show up, throw up, and hopefully get a trade or a deal done on that basis. In defining and building in response to your purpose, which is defined by the problem you solve, the product or service you offer, you can also then get all the features and elements you need to get the problem solved. But Bruce, most importantly, you can get the pricing right. Because if you understand the problem and you understand the cost of the problem not being solved, your solution by way of the product or service that you offer needs to solve that problem at a lower cost than the problem itself 
so that there's value left on the table for your customer. Does it also help? And this is, I think, for small businesses, the hardest thing of all, and that is knowing when to say yes and knowing when to say no. Knowing that either this is going to work for you and for your customer, or it's not going to work for you, and having the guts to identify it up front and to say, you know what, I'm sure you're lovely, but we're just not going to do business together. You know, it's 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 a very, very, very bitter lesson that gets learned. And just yesterday, in fact, I, I had the opportunity to meet with 18 business owners, and one of them was a former executive at Tesco, which is an enormous supermarket chain store. And she was astute, really astute. And she turned around and said, because we were debating positioning, and that's where the notion and deepening of understanding positioning came uh, to light this week. She turned around and she said, so what you're saying is you define yourself not by what you do, but you define yourself by what you say no to doing. And it is absolutely right. It is so, so hard to get right for the simple fact that as most business owners, if you start your business undercapitalized, if you start it out of necessity, if you started to generate economy for yourself, in the starting stages, the first two, three, four, five years, Bruce, you say no to very, very few things because you have your eye on that bank balance. You need to keep the oxygen or cash flow live, positive, flowing in the business. You are fearful that if you don't have that oxygen in the business, you're going to suffocate the business. So you develop bad scar tissue. And that bad scar tissue becomes an unconscious habit of saying yes to anything and everything. And through that, you land up becoming nothing to almost everyone. You land up fighting in the game of product features or price benefits or slightly faster service. You don't land up defining your purpose as a problem and you don't land up building the right products and services to fit that purpose so that in positioning your business, you find the home that is resonant and that will, for the customers that use you, amplify the value that you've offered them. It's called word of mouth marketing. Absolutely. There's a reason why we feel good about some companies and less good about others. And it is ultimately, it boils down to that that one simple thing and it's positioning. Yep. And you know, one of the most, one of the statements that we've made so many times on the show and if you think about your own behavior and the way that you operate and function in life, you have no ear to hear anything or understand anything until firstly you feel heard and understood. And what positioning helps a customer engage with, if you position right to the right kind of customer and you've understood that customer to the extent that we've spoken about this evening, before you even start selling to them, they will automatically feel heard and understood. And when you feel heard and understood, you open your ears and eyes and mouth to hear and learn about what a business is able to offer. And you're doing so on the front foot of having trusted that business before you've even engaged with them. It is the most powerful, powerful tool to get right. And yet it's the hardest thing to get right. Pavlo Fatidis, thank you. Pavlo is the Chief Executive at Auric Business Accelerator, taking us to Veronica Mohwadi with Eyewitness News at exactly half past seven. The Money Show. Personal Finance. So have you got a financial advisor? 
if you have got a financial advisor, how did you choose that financial advisor? I suspect you chose that financial advisor because you walked into a bank one day and you said, hello, I need a financial advisor. And you were pointed to the corner where somebody very nice sat at a table and said, hello, would you like to buy my bank's products or the insurance company we work with products? And um, you didn't pay attention to fees and stuff because you just trusted the person because you trusted your bank. Or uh, more likely, um, you spoke to a friend who said, I've got a lovely financial advisor and they work for this company and you went to that financial advisor and you bought that company's products. I wonder how many of you have got independent financial advice. Financial advice from people um, who may focus on particular, you know, three or four different companies' products and services and offerings because they relate to them, they understand them, they, uh, they're they willing to, to work with those financial services companies. I, I wonder how you do it um, in many cases. And I, I wonder how true this remains. People sort of go to the same financial advisor as their parents, at least for a while, um, because their parents drop them off and take them and pick them up and there may be a rapport. Certainly in in family wealth planning, that's ideal. And you've got wealth planners who, who strive to incorporate family planning. Well, not that kind of family planning, you understand, but um, the planning, wealth planning within families over, over generations. So how did you choose your financial advisor? I'm curious as to how you did it, um, because you may have some very good guidance for us this evening. 07 7021702. Send us a WhatsApp tonight on how you chose your financial advisor. It doesn't count if that's your brother, your sister, or your mom, or your dad. That's not independent. We're trying to learn things here. Google Sidaki is the founder at Wealth Creed. And uh, Google, I am curious as to how you found your first financial advisor. Hello, Bruce. Um, yeah, it's, it's exactly how you point, you painted the picture earlier. Um, I went to a bank, I went to my bank and there happened to be somebody there at the, at the end of the counter who suggested that I, I chat to one of their people at the bank. So that's exactly how I got my first financial advisor. Uh, were they any good? They're okay. <laughs> they were okay. Judging were very put... limited then. <laughs> of course. But it's, it's a, it is, I think, the gateway drug to to financial advice, isn't it? It is that that concept of actually sitting down and talking to somebody who knows more than you about a topic hmm. that actually you can learn. And you may outgrow that person. You may outgrow that institution. Yeah. But you at least are starting on a journey. I agree with that. I think it's a great entry point um, into um, financial advisory and um, particularly given our, our country and, and the struggles that we have to penetrate um, the broader market when it comes to um, offering our financial services. So yeah, it's, it's a great first step. I'm, I'm not criticizing what happens at the bank. I used to work at the bank and there's a lot of good things that happened at, at, happen at banks. And, and one of them is, is exactly this, an introduction to, to um, financial advice. The Money Show, of course, brought to you by APSA CIB, raising a glass to celebrate APSA's pan-African excellence. APSA is a registered FSP. So, okay, we, we, we've moved beyond that now. We, we're a little bit more grown up and um, there are 2.3 dogs and half a child and a mortgage and a car loan and a marriage and possibly a divorce. I don't know what the situation is. How do we go about identifying the sort of person with whom we want to talk about money with whom we can be vulnerable, somebody we will tolerate being brutally honest with us, and somebody who we will trust to guide us down a path which is so critical to our future well-being. Yeah. 
Um, I think in your in your analogy that you forgot the picket fence, but that that's fine. I, th- I think the first step, um, and I think the most crucial step, is is starting with you. What is it that you require? Um, it's important for you to take the time um, to to analyze exactly what your needs are, and and they could they could be multiple. It could be a singular need, but it's important for you to firstly understand what the issue is. It's, like, it's, it's much like going to the GP, right? You would go there and say, you know what, I've got a pain on my left side. You don't go there and say, tell me what's wrong with me. Ideally, that's that's not how you should go about it. So with, with financial planning, that's exactly that, or seeking financial advice. So is it a coaching or a life planning need? Is it investments? Is it risk management? Is it budgeting? Is it debt management? It could be one, it could be a couple, it could be various things, but it's important to start with you, right? And, and writing those things down as, and, and, and then taking those things to any potentials, um, that you're going to interview in order to give you financial, for them to give you financial advice. Okay. So here, I mean, most of us, I don't think know what we need. We don't know what we don't know. What we don't know is vast uh, because this is quite a complicated thing. And you've just mentioned a whole bunch mm. of stuff that people would never have considered. Mm. They would go, well, I need a financial advisor because I need to retire one day. So I better go and talk to someone. And they wouldn't have thought, yeah. frankly, of the other mm. nine things that you you you, you naturally um, rattle off because they're all absolutely critical mm as part of that journey towards retirement one day. Um, but this, this process of, of developing a financial plan and structuring your life, which is so tedious and so frightening and so grounding in terms of coming to terms with your own mortality, for example, is so pivotal because to get the right person to come and help you shape your life is an intervention. <laughs> it really mm. is an intervention. Mm. Um, and th- mm. that takes a really special dynamic, doesn't it? I agree. So you are correct. Um, the, the the average individual wouldn't necessarily know that they need coaching versus risk management versus cash flow management. There typically is a trigger. Um, there's a transition of sort that you're going through, whether you're changing jobs, whether it's death, divorce, um, whatever the case is. But there's there's typically one issue that you're struggling with that you know you need assistance with, and that's when you'd approach um, a financial advisor. So I'd, I'd give an example. There's two major things that clients um, present whenever they come see us. And the first and most important one is how do I make more money? So an, an investment need, firstly, a cash flow management need. So I'm struggling um, to manage my day to day. And how do I maximize that? And then the second one is 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 obviously children. Um, so once usually it's, it's it's quite a big trigger when people have children, then they realize that they need to be a lot more responsible with their finances, and they need assistance <laughs> with that. But yes, from that point, we yeah. then you know map out exactly what it is that we do and what the possibilities are and what all the other interventions um, we 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 can sort of engage in to assist a client to manage their finances a lot more effectively. Yeah, and it is it's it's life coaching in so many respects as well. And and it is mm. that intimate life coaching. How honest do you mm. find people are with you when they first have that interaction? Because I think a lot of people are mm. embarrassed, one, that they don't understand mm. the stuff, two, that their financial affairs are not in order, that they have not mm. begun investing or their investments are inadequate. And they know it, but they've 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 yet to be able to verbalize that in a way that doesn't make mm. them feel foolish. And I think one of the things that res- constrains so many people is that fear of feeling foolish. Mm, you're right. Um, whenever I sit in front of a client for the first time, um, they're usually quite cagey and it's understandable. I'm a complete stranger to them. 
Um, and now all of a sudden they're, they're expected to sort of divulge such a deep and intimate aspect of their lives. And, and to be honest, there's so many emotions attached to money. And, and one of the major emotions, um, is shame. A lot of people, as you quite rightly said, are quite embarrassed about how they manage their finances. And they think they're going to be judged, you know, particularly when speaking to an advisor or an individual that they've never met before. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a deterrent I found. Um, a lot of people delay speaking to a professional because they really are worried about the perception that that individual is going to have of them. But yeah, I mean, one of the first things I always say to 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 people when I meet them for the first time, because it's hard, you know, meeting somebody for the first time, then all of a sudden divulging what your debt levels are, what your salary is, is, is really, really difficult. And, and one of the first things I say is this is a this is a, a judgment-free zone. I'm not here to judge you because otherwise I wouldn't be able to do my job properly. You know, the the, the, yeah. the the one thing that we have to get out the way is that it's judgment-free. And and once we get over that hump, sometimes it takes a meeting. Sometimes it takes a couple of meetings. And with some clients, it takes a few months, a couple of years. It depends. The relationships, All the relationships are different. But once we get over that hurdle, then it becomes a lot easier to advise people regarding their personal finances. But yeah, it's, it's quite a big one to overcome. Then, okay, so you, you mentioned earlier that you're going to go to interview financial advisors. Oh, my goodness gracious me. I couldn't mm. think of anything more horrendous because <laughs> you're, you're assuming a level of knowledge. You're assuming that I know what questions to ask. You assume that once people are answering the questions, I'm going to understand the answers in a way that empowers me to make the right decision for myself. Um, mm. and, and let's say we go and speak to three financial advisors and they'll all be on their best behavior and they'll all be telling us what we want mm. to hear because these people are ultimately very good with, with human beings. They've got very strong EQs, generally speaking. The bad mm. ones obviously don't and you're quick weed those out um, and it becomes a very difficult selection process so how do we go then um, you know it's a little I don't know I've never done tinder but let's say uh, I don't know whether to swipe left or right so how do you make the, that call as to which way to swipe on a financial advisor yeah that, that's such an important um, question and and it is the reason why people get scammed so much out there is because they just don't know what to look out for when looking for a financial advisor. The most basic starting point is 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 making sure that your person is is who and what they say they are and that they're accredited and that they've got the requisite um, education, experience and and um, authorization by by the the necessary regulatory bodies to dispense financial advice because let's face it there are a lot of people out there who are masquerading as financial advisors and they're not for a number of reasons so the very first step is is ensuring that you're dealing with the right kind of person it's such a simple test you go to the fsca website right and you put in the details that have been given to you by this advisor so they have to give you a license number of sorts of the institution that they're affiliated to once you put or if even if you don't have the license number if you've got the the, the institution's name the business that they work for you can easily find out what this institution is about the kind of um, products and services that they allow to dispense or, or give advice on and it, they, they should also be listed as as a representative or as somebody who's allowed to give financial advice on the FSCA website on behalf of one of those companies um, that they purport to to be working for. So that's the first non-negotiable thing that you need to do is make sure that you're dealing with an authorized representative who is known by the FSCA because the reason is if anything goes wrong, you know, you have a recourse of sorts, you know, there's various ways in which you can, um, various steps that you can take to ensure that you, 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 um, you, 
what is the word? It's, it's sorry, it's escaped me now. But there's various steps that you can take to ensure that you're given the right kind of advice. And if you haven't been given the right kind of advice, you've got recourse against that. So that's step number one. Step yeah. number two, it is a lot like dating, unfortunately. Um, there needs to be a client advisor fit. And it goes both ways, right? So um, as much as you have to enjoy your engagements with me um the, the opposite is also true so you, we do need to interview each other you know that's why the first couple of meetings are so crucial you know we need to eyeball each other whether we're doing it online or we're sitting face to face and we need to talk and the more you talk to somebody the more you get a sense or a feel you know for what they think you get to understand what their values are you get to understand how they work and then you get to decide if this is the kind of um intervention or this kind of individual that you want to be dealing with for 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 a protracted period because let's face it this is a very long-term relationship that you're engaging in um ideally your financial advisor should be should be in your life for for an extended period because they get to know you better as you grow as you evolve and they get to um you know put together in interventions to help you achieve financial success so client and advisor fit is is crucial and you only get there by getting to know a person by by sitting in front of them and interviewing them um, and and, and next you've got to thing? ask yeah. difficult yeah. questions. I mean, like, what what are your fees? And why? what do I yes. get for my fee? How often do I get to see you? When yes. will you come and visit me? Or do I need to come to your office? Do we, mm. do we have Zoom calls? Um, yes. How is this relationship going to work? And uh, again, make sure that they're being realistic in terms of looking after you. So many financial advisors actually get to a point where they don't take on new customers because they know they can't service mm. any new additional people. Absolutely. And they may say, well, will be part of my practice. I'll have oversight and you'll meet Johnny and Johnny comes out and you know, mm. smearing clearasil onto his skin um, because he's just qualified and he, um, Johnny has got academic qualifications and the, the, the company has got, and this often happens where, where you've got the, mm. the, the senior person sort of reels you in um, and then mm. you get, and you get handed over to the junior. And I worry about that because you, you've really, you've really got to relate to the person who's giving you the advice. Yeah. And and you're quite right. Um, a lot of businesses do work like that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it as long as it's disclosed to you so that you can make an informed yep. decision. Interesting that you say that because I've got a client, um, I've got a couple actually, um, who specifically said to me when I took them on the first time around is that under no circumstances am I to flog them off to anybody else in my business. They are there because they're dealing with me and me only. So that's yeah. one of the things that I had to commit to when I took them on. And that's perfectly fine. But there are institutions or there are businesses where it's an understanding that you work with a team. You know, that's how the businesses are run. Um, there is an individual who brings you in, as you quite rightly said, who reels you in. But then you you are serviced by various specialists within that business. And those models work quite successfully. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But yeah, it needs to be disclosed to you upfront so that you know exactly what you're what you're in for. But yeah, you do need to understand how that business works. So are they a team? Is it a one-man show? Um, the communication style, for example, they're gonna be WhatsApping you at all hours of the night, or can you do the same? Or is it only emails and phone calls only? What's the frequency? Um, and, and and all of those things are, are really, really important before you actually take somebody on as an advisor. And well, fees, like you said, to be are crucial. Absolutely. 
do they need to be a certified financial planner? Because a certified financial planner is a bit like, I don't know, I don't, it's too much of a stretch to say they're the equivalent of a GP versus a medical specialist. These are people who have done additional studies. These are people who have, mm. uh, who have gone above and beyond in terms of qualifications within the industry. Is that essential? Because that ultimately would cost more. Maybe you get a better service, maybe you get better outcomes. I don't know if it's necessarily yeah. a requirement. Yeah, it's not a requirement. It is a recommendation. Um, if you look at the number of financial advisors out there, there are approximately 100,000 financial advisors in the country, and about 5% of them are certified financial planners. But that being said, <clears throat> there are so many, I, mean, I, I know so many financial advisors who are not CFPs who are doing absolutely wonderful work for their financial advisors. Because if we look at the the FASE Act, it actually takes care of a lot of the requirements that, that advisors need to have um, in terms of um, experience and and minimum qualifications um as well as uh the the duty to to be honest and fair with your clients but as you quite rightly said uh, having or dealing with a certified financial planner or a cfp um actually adds an additional layer of all of those things that are are, are prerequisites um, according to to phase for example um there's the depending on the product or service that you give advice on, there's only a couple of months to about a year or so um, in advice, I mean, in in, in, in experience that you're, that's required by, by phase, by the phase act, whereas with, um, with the CFP designation, before it can be conferred upon you, you have to have a minimum of at least three years financial services experience. Um, you also have to take a board exam. It's called the, the professional competency exam, where they actually test your knowledge practically um, to ensure that you know exactly what you're talking about. And then you also have to, to abide by an additional layer of ethics and professional standards. And then there's a specific way in which financial certified financial planners um, give financial advice that's stipulated in the code of conduct of the of, of the CFP, of the of the FPI, the CFP mark. So yeah, you you do have that added benefit of dealing with a certified certified financial, oh my goodness, a certified financial planner. <laughs> like, um yeah. <laughs> In that, um, yeah, they okay. have taken a few right. extra steps to ensure that they, they they know what they're talking about. But no, it's not a requirement. All right. So we go to see three lovely people. Um, they are all yeah. properly qualified. They are all properly registered. They all can show us a track record of decent performance. How mm -hmm. then do we then select? the one that is going to be right for us because you know there, there can be no sometimes there are no wrong answers here um but it is something mm. that is you know is going to they get, they're going to be part of your life they're going to have an impact on your family life your, your your spouse has got to get on with them if you have a spouse um you you've got to understand that they've got the best interests of your kids at heart as well because that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. perhaps why you are going into the space um and mm -hmm. that that the intimacy of that relationship it is it it can be more intimate than a relationship with a, with, with a gp frankly mm. Mm, no, it definitely is because um, yeah, we know a lot more than what your GP knows um, about your life. <laughs> and you know, uh, honestly speaking, Bruce, at the end of the day, it, it really is a personal thing. I mean, if you've if you've done the necessary homework, so you you you're a hundred percent well, you as sure as possible that your your potential advisor is capable, right? And you're as sure as possible that they're charging the the right kind of fees. Um, you can you can chat to. To, to existing clients and find out what what their clients say about them. But at the end of the day, it's like dating. You know, I mean, I, I, I can meet the right person on paper, you know, but the, the minute I 
start dating you, I can find some some issues that that I'm not willing to to live with. And it does happen quite often that we have to sever yeah. ties with clients and, and vice versa, or they have to say goodbye to us because the relationships don't work for whatever reason. And it's got nothing to do with competence or, or the fees that we charge. It's, it's just a, a client advisor fit. So unfortunately there, if you've done all the checks, right, and you've done everything necessary to ensure that you're dealing with the right person, unfortunately, you just kind of have to take the plunge um, and 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 yeah. see if, if if it's the kind of um, relationship that you're wanting to to carry on with over over a long period. What percentage of your clients come from referrals? Because I would think that that is, I mean, to my mind, uh, especially when you end up in a new suburb or in a new town or mm. new place, um, the first thing you do mm. when you're looking for a plumber or for a GP yes. or for a financial advisor is you ask other people. You, you meet people that you like and yeah. you go, oh, you seem sensible. You've got a head on your shoulders, got two ears, nose. Yep, yep, okay. You mm. look like you, you can <laughs> uh, you can make decisions. Um, yeah, you, your yeah. kids aren't dreadful. Okay, maybe you're a decent parent. Maybe I'll take advice from you. Do you have any guidance for me, please? And then they they put you in touch with somebody that they trust and they regard highly. And, you know, I would think that that's probably the most common way of people finding Mm. specialist help. I agree. I agree. It definitely is. And the nice thing about that is... um, you know, especially if you niche, for example, our, our business deals predominantly, not solely, but predominantly with, with women professionals, um, as well as retirees. And um, those are the best referral sources because women are like that, right? Whenever we meet, we talk about who does our nails, who does our hair, where we buy our clothes. And before you know it, you have a lot of people similar to your client base who are coming to you for financial advice. So it absolutely is the best way. Um, to go about getting um, a, a, a financial advisor. So speak to people who have had a great experience with their financial advisor. But even then, you do need to take the necessary precaution. You do need to to still do the necessary homework, but it is definitely one of the best ways in which to find um, a financial advisor that's suited to you. Thanks so much for coming through for us this evening. It's wonderful to have you back on again. Thank you, Gugu Sidaki, who's a certified financial planner. She's one of those few. Uh, a CFP, uh, and uh, she is at Wealth Creed. How to choose a financial advisor. It is truly one of the more important decisions that you will take. And um, and it's, again, not for life. Um, if it doesn't work out, you, you cut your losses and you move uh, both ways because your financial advisor may take one look at you five years down the line. You've taken a bad habit. You've just, <laughs> I don't know, maybe you've got a gambling habit or maybe you got divorced or maybe it's made you miserable. I don't know, whatever the reasons might be. Um, but you've got to go into this being able to be completely honest with your financial advisor, be absolutely clear on what your goals are, what you're thinking about money, the way you feel about money, and then bulldust them because they will, you know, work you out eventually. But you've got such, it's so much a quicker and so much clearer and so much better for everybody if you just, Highlight and vase, as they say. Take out and show um, your financials, that is, on The Money Show. Brought to you by ABSA CIB, raising a glass to celebrate ABSA's pan-African excellence. ABSA is a registered FSB. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by ABSA Corporate and Investment Banking. Bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. ABSA is a registered FSB.